Okay, now that I have swept the floor, I need space to roam. Um, I don't know almost any of you. I was sitting here, I haven't been to the table in probably a year, um, and I have not, I'm like, holy cow, this is very different. So I know like seven of you. Um, I have my confidence man, so why not need an amen? I got one right here. Um, but my name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the ministers at Sunnybrook. I have an office just down the hall from uh, Scott and Drew. My wife is Rachel, so many of you would know her. Yeah, I feel the same way, but more. Um, yeah. Um, so, I am looking forward to our time tonight. We're going to be finishing up. Um, actually, we're not going to be finishing the chapter. We'll be getting close, but we're going to be in the... Um, back half of Mark 10. So if you want to uh, flip over to Mark 10, we'll be picking it up in verse 32. Uh, my voice has been going for a couple of days, so I'm hoping to time this right and just run out of gas in about 30 minutes. So we'll see. I'm going to yell as loud as I can, though. Yes. Um, so if I could go to the right book here. Okay, I know you guys, this is the second table of the semester, is that right? Second one of the semester? Okay, so there's a bit of, um, there's a, bit of a disconnect, unfortunately, it's just the way the semester happens, but you're in a pretty important section in the book of Mark. Um, this is why I've got to move all this stuff, because I'm going to draw a lot. Um, it's important that we see where we are in the book in order to kind of figure out what's happening, because tonight we are going to be hitting the end of a major section and whenever you're transitioning from one section to another, it's very important to know why the author is doing that. Why is Mark all of a sudden going to have a new emphasis starting next week as you guys move in at the very end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11? Um, and from where is he coming? So we need to understand the structure. And you guys have talked about this a little bit if you were here last semester. But Mark, you could really break it down into three sections, two major sections, and then a transition section. So from chapter 1 to, I'll call it 8a, the beginning of chapter 8, I think it runs up through verse 30 or 31, um, this section ends with Peter's confession that you are the Christ. So the first eight chapters of Mark is um, the gospel writer, the apostle, um, the guy who's running around with Peter, he is, um, he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's showing all these proofs that Jesus is working miracles. He's doing all these things. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that was prophesied about, and he's here. So that's the first eight chapters. Chapters 11 through 16 are the fact that the Messiah, who we now know is Jesus, he must suffer. So you are Messiah. This really is an identity section. And the Messiah will suffer in the back half of the book. And we'll see that play out in a big, long narrative. Drew said it last week. Mark is going to slow down quite a bit for these last um, five chapters. But we are in the very end of this transition period, which goes from 8b, which I think is verse 32 or 31 of chapter 8, all the way up to the end of chapter uh, 10. And we are in this very last section and it is the third of Jesus' three passion predictions. Now what he's doing, what Mark is doing as he arranges this material, is he is showing that this Messiah, 
the one who works all these miracles and establishes his authority as God's chosen one through whom he's going to reconcile all things, he is now saying, well, this is what's going to happen to me. Like, I'm going to die. And this is a, a little bit counterintuitive um, to what the disciples were expecting, what all of Jesus' followers were expecting. And in this section, you see um, Jesus will foretell his death and then he'll work a miracle. Foretell his death, heal a blind man. Heal someone who has an evil spirit. And then he'll foretell his death and then other people are healing people in Jesus' name. It goes back and forth between like declaring his authority and then a proclamation that, yeah, I'm actually going to go die. And it's, this is how it's going to go. And the disciples, all throughout, are just like the model of being totally dense. They do not get it. They keep, they're, they're just kind of breezing past what Jesus says is going to happen. And you'll see that throughout this, this gospel, Mark is a phenomenal writer. He seems to have the simplest of the four gospels, but he's a phenomenal writer because he uses contrast to clarify things. Contrast is the mother of clarity. And so tonight, as we go through our section, beginning in verse 32, you're going to see um, he's going to juxtapose expectations of disciples or Jesus' followers, expectations versus reality. I'll give you a hint, who's the one who understands reality? Mark is going to do a masterful job of teaching us more about Jesus and more about who he is and more about what he's going to do and accomplish by juxtaposing the expectations of his audience, of the disciples and the followers of Jesus, over and against what Jesus is saying. So, now we know that we are going to be dealing with authority here as the Messiah who can speak. And then as he continues to predict how he will suffer, how that authority validates his prophecies about himself. And how Mark uses many Old Testament prophecies and, or allusions to them to establish who Jesus is. So, I am going to call on someone to read here in a second. I want to read the first one, the first little section, just because we're going to stop in some weird places. So, starting in verse 32, if you will read with me. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Okay, we already have some confusing elements here in the story. First, they were on the road. This is Jesus and his disciples, generally speaking, although there's some other followers, and we'll see here in a second, going up to Jerusalem. If we were in Luke's Gospel, Luke would say in chapters 9 through 19 in Luke's Gospel, he talks about that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. This is the moment in Mark's Gospel, much like in Luke's, where Jesus is now, he has done the early part of his ministry, and now he is on his death march. He knows where he's going. You're going to see next week he's going to enter Jerusalem, and it's going to go badly because Jesus walks in and kicks the hornet's nest. If anyone knows how to get themselves killed, it's the guy who invented life. So he walks in and causes problems. And he is now marching towards Jerusalem. And you'll see that there are different reactions from the people that are with him. Some are amazed, likely his disciples, and some are terrified. Now why is this the case? Why are some amazed and some terrified? What was, and we're going we're gonna to study some Old Testament texts to see what, the, what kind of influenced this way of thinking. What was the early disciples slash um, those in Jesus' ministry, what was their expectation of the Messiah? 
They're go he's going to come and restore Israel. What does Israel need restoration from? Rome. Rome is the big, they're the bully on the block. They're running all the, whatever they want to do, they do. They keep the peace by just killing people who get in their way. It's a really peaceful way of regenerating peace, the Pax Romana. Um, and they have Jerusalem slash Israel under their thumb. You will do what we say. We'll, we'll let you have your governors to deal with your silly city disputes. But in the end, we're in control because we have, we're, we're an occupying army. We deal with things how we wish to deal with them. And um, by the way, you're going to pay us a lot of taxes because our soldiers got to eat. The soldiers that will kill you if you don't pay the taxes. You see how this cycle works? Rome is a terrible friend to have in the first century. They're no friend at all. They're just those who are big enough to do whatever they want. The Messiah was expected to come and restore Israel and overthrow Rome. Now, we know that Jesus really didn't fulfill their expectations. Um, before they kind of figured it out, both after his death and resurrection and at Pentecost, they were kind of disappointed with his messiahship. This isn't what we expected, Jesus. This isn't the kingdom we expected. You go read in Matthew's gospel all the parables about the kingdom. This is not what we really thought it was going to look like, Jesus. Rome is still doing whatever they want. And, you know, my tendency is to, um, to be the guy that says, well, if I were there, I just would have got it. If I were there, I really would have understood. But the more I look at it, the more I think I would have had the same expectations as them. I think I might have been disappointed with Jesus. So, we are going to look at Jewish expectations of the Messiah, the man that they called the Son of Man, and see why they had good reason to believe that Jesus was going to come in and kick Rome out, and why their expectations when they encounter the reality that is Jesus totally flips everything on its head, and why Jesus' claims at the end that this, my kingdom's not going to look how you thought it was going to look, why it matters so much. So, the great prophet Isaiah. This is what he said about the coming Son of Man. You guys know this text. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, this is a political idea. This is, a, this is the one we're waiting for. He's going to overthrow governments. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Sounds like a really powerful dude. Sounds like he's going to know what he's doing and what he's talking about. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Okay, so he's going to, he's going to have a worldwide kingdom that will never end. It will never be overthrown. This is Isaiah 9, by the way, if you're looking for it. Isaiah the prophet goes on. And on the throne of David, oh, the Davidic king. That's the Messiah we're waiting for. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah will call him the branch. This divine king that will have this eternal throne and that will fulfill the Davidic covenant. Okay, this is the guy we're looking for. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, if you're a disciple, if you're following Jesus around in his earthly ministry, who is unjust and who is unrighteous those gentiles those romans who are oppressing us okay moving on there's another important guy named daniel the prophet 
In Daniel 7, you'll see he actually uses this title that Jesus loves to use for himself. And behold, this is right after a section where he describes um, the Ancient of Days, my personal favorite name for God. He describes the Ancient of Days in this heavenly throne room, in this powerful God figure. Then he says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself. Now, if you're going to go in and say, this is me, you better start living up to a pretty serious resume. One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that would be God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, Rome included, all nations, Rome included, and languages, even those that speak Greek, Latin, whatever, should serve him. So when Jesus comes in and starts to describe how he's going to die at the hands of these Gentiles, I think I'd be the disciple that says, but hold on. Like Isaiah and Daniel did not describe it as happening like this. I wonder why, like, I don't know if we can fault them for their expectations of the Messiah. Daniel goes on, his dominion, that would be the Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, you might be saying, okay, Ryan, Isaiah was written a while before Jesus. Daniel, too, written a while before. Daniel was written in Babylon during the Babylonian exile. Okay, but what were the people in the first century thinking? What did they expect? What were Peter and James and John expecting out of a Messiah? Um, one of the interesting ways that you can analyze culture is by looking at their music. I even loved listening to um, the worship songs. And, and Eli, where'd you go? Eli and I had a conversation this morning on how like, a lot of worship music is, is slowly changing these days. Mm-hmm. Worship music, let's just say last year, because I don't know, we didn't really talk about it. Let's just say last year's worship music was really emotive, and it was trying to evoke like, this real um, tear-jerking passion in you. And a lot of music is now being written that wants to teach doctrine. If you go and see a lot of the new music that's coming out, it's very creedal. It's talking about like the deep like nuts and bolts of doctrine of the Christian faith. And I wonder, okay, it's not as if we're just coming up with this. This is what people, this is how people worship. Like they love this stuff now. Um, if you go and read the Psalms in your Bible, you can see um, the general kind of temperature of Israel when David was king. You can see him mourn over things. You can see him rejoice. You can see him praise God. These are like, this was the hymnal for Israel. This is what they sang. Now, David was a thousand years before Jesus. I found some hymns that were written about 50 years before Jesus. Now, these aren't in your Bible, but don't freak out. That's okay. Um, They're not even in Catholic Bibles, but really, don't freak out. It's okay. (laughs) This is a pseudepigraphal book, which just means, it's a weird word that just means written and then someone else like put a different name on it like my name is ryan i would write this book and put i would say the songs of anthony because i just really want people to believe that anthony wrote it (laughs) so there's this book that is very fascinating to go and read and it was written after rome started to occupy israel so rome occupies israel in 63 bc right about 70 years before jesus comes along and there's the, you can tell all these songs are directed at, we want to be free of this Roman army. 
and so they wrote, there's this book, and no one knows who really wrote it, but it's called the um, Psalms of Solomon. So I just titled it Ancient Jewish Pop Music. This is what they sang. <laughs> this, was, this reflected the temperament of the people in Jesus' day. This reflected their emotions as they were dealing with this Roman army. Now listen to how they think the Messiah should look. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, their Judavitic king, the branch, at the time which you choose, O God, to rule over Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength to shatter in pieces unrighteous rulers. wonder who they could be talking about. To purify Jerusalem from nations that trample her down in destruction. Hello, Rome. In wisdom of righteousness to drive out sinners from the inheritance. To smash the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been a great first century Jew. Uh, and he goes on. To shatter all their substance with an iron rod, which is another Daniel reference. To destroy the lawless nations by the word of his mouth. This is what they expected. That by, well, that by his threat, nations flee from his presence and to reprove sinners with the thought of their heart. This is what they expected the Messiah to look like. So back to our text. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Why? Because they said, finally this ruler is here. This is going to be great. And it's probably going to result in war. And you know what? The, the, like, the high priests, they're Sadducees, which just means we like being paid off by Rome. So they're going to side with the Roman army. Therefore, this probably not only means national war against Rome, it probably also means civil war. And Israel's had a civil war before. Um, we had one, right? Four years. Israel's was 50 years long, killing each other. They said, like, this is... We're amazed at what's happening and we're terrified at what's about to happen. And then they said this. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is the guy they've been waiting for. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, there's that title from Daniel, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. A little anticlimactic and kind of a downer. Jesus was kind of their emo friend. That they're like, dude, you are, this is not what it's supposed to look like, Jesus. This is not what it's supposed to look like. You need to go read your prophecies. You're the son of God, right? So you should know these things. But if you haven't, we'll read them to you. This is not what it's supposed to look like. You don't die because of Rome. You kill Rome. Their expectations were totally different than what Jesus was going to do. <laughs> but James and John, being dense, they haven't understood it yet. They are the sons of Zebedee. They came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So they don't get it. 
Um, Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, um, crucified by the Gentiles, because at this point, Israel isn't powerful enough to enact any capital punishment. That right was taken away from them because they're not really in charge. Rome is. You can condemn people, but then we'll execute them because we're best at it. And this is the third passion prediction, and (laughs) James and John run right past it. Jesus, we understand you're having some trouble keeping up. We'll, we'll catch you up later. But by the way, when we get there and we take over, can we sit on your left and your right hand? Can we? Now, I, I even appreciate their passion. They are showing, at, at, they're showing stupidity. But at the very best, they're also saying, no, we do believe you're the Messiah. And we do believe this is going to go well. We, we believe you have the authority to grant such prominence. After all, Jesus had already placed them in his inner circle. These are the guys that saw the transfiguration. Um, Mark is very kind to James and John. He doesn't tell the whole story. If you go to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew actually tells us a little bit more about this request. says that their mom asked Jesus. (laughs) I just love that. Oh... If your mom ever calls, like asking for like your job, to like, can I, hey, can my kid interview with you? That's 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 James and John's mom. <laughs> so Luke saves some face for them a little bit, but but again, expectations versus reality. Remember what did Jesus just say to them a few chapters ago, in nine one. He says to these, "You will not taste death." Until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Okay, sounds good. So I think this is going to go well, Jesus. This looks like it's going to be a really successful campaign against Rome. Can we, like, rule with you? We don't want to be the guy, that's you, clearly. But can we rule with you? And Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Cup and baptism are interesting terms in this passage. Cup is, um, in, in, in terms of the Old Testament, and Mark does a great job of bringing Old Testament references in, in terms of the Old Testament, the cup is, um, is a symbol of God's wrath being poured out on unrighteousness. It's a symbol of judgment. Um, why is, what, is Jesus drinking anything in the garden when he asks that this cup could be taken from him? He's saying, is there, if there's any way that your plan can go outside of me absorbing your right wrath poured out on me, let's talk about it. But not my will, but yours be done. A cup is God's wrath being poured out in judgment. And baptism is a similar picture. Um, you have to imagine that Mark's original readers who, um, who are, are, are looking through this passage, you know, that they would be remembering their baptism. And Paul says in Romans 6 that the baptism is a, a death where sins are judged and a resurrection to a new life. So this, this is just two ways of talking about God pouring out His wrath on unrighteousness and on sinful humanity. And this is another great opportunity to turn back to Isaiah the prophet, where even when you go back to Jesus' prediction about how his death is going to go, Isaiah 53 is a great place to look at that. And here we see we get a good picture of what this cup of wrath is going to look like. In 53 verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the cup of wrath being poured out on Jesus. A few verses later, in 53.10, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. That would be Jesus. To crush Jesus. He has put his servant to grief. This is, this is the cup being poured out on Jesus. Jesus says, oh, okay, you guys want to, can you do that? They're like, yeah, we can do that, Jesus. Right now they think Jesus is kind of just tired and, and just sleep talking. He doesn't really know what he's saying. He thinks he's going to go get killed by Rome and he's talking about this cup. Sure, Jesus, whatever, just give us the positions of power. Jesus says, You're, you can do this. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And can you be baptized in the same way that I'll be baptized? Sure. And then I love the way that Jesus, he affirms the cost of their commitment. He doesn't even tell them, ah, you guys don't really get it. He says, yeah, you will drink the cup. Like, he, you even get this beautiful picture of just the cost of discipleship here. You won't drink it in the same way that Jesus does. The cup that I drink, this is the back half of verse 39, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now this is a fascinating little line. Because this is, to, to grant that position is beyond the scope of Jesus' authority. Not to say that he couldn't do it, but like Philippians tells us, he laid it down to submit everything to the Father. He has given up the authority, I think, to grant this. Much like he's given up the ability to know when he will uh, return the second time. Jesus is in something, we're actually going to be talking, Drew and I are going to be talking about this next week, trying to figure out what this actually means. But he gave up some of his like divineness. And he says, like, I can't do this. I'm so submitted to the Father that only he can choose this. And a careful reader will jump to the end of Mark 15 and say, oh, there are two people at his right hand in his glory. They're just crucified next to him. At the moment when Jesus is in like a beautiful moment of glory. As true victory is won. You see, expectations in reality are tumbling over one another. And Mark is saying, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it. And the disciples are like, Jesus, you don't get it. Jesus, you don't get it. And Jesus is like, no, I get it. You're going you're gonna to suffer like I do. But I understand what this is going to look like. And then verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now there's no evidence that this is a righteous indignation. Like, how dare you talk to Jesus like this? This is more like, man, we wanted that spot. This is a jealousy. So James and John aren't the only idiots in the bunch. After all, Peter's running around, and I'm sure he's like, oh, I want that spot. And they're indignant. Now, it's, this, it's after this narrative that Jesus takes this incredible opportunity to teach some profound truths that he's already been teaching, but we're going to get it in probably its expanded form here for the third time following his passion prediction that he will suffer at the hands of the Romans. Verse 42. After the ten get all angry, 
And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles rule it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. And then that, if you're, I don't care, if you're not an underliner in your Bible, you need to be for this verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now again, I told you this is all about contrast. And contrast is the mother of clarity. Now you're going to see Jesus. You might just, in in our Bibles, I wish that our Bibles had more charts. I wish that Mark would have had more charts. Because he's comparing um, worldly greatness Long word. And kingdom greatness. And Drew's going to expand on this a lot, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But for any of you English majors, we got we got some poetic lining up here. Okay. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. So, Gentile rulers, how do they operate? They say this, they lord it over them. In a sense, they abuse their power. Follows that up. They're great ones. They go out of their way to exercise authority over people. You see here that there is um, a tendency for power to corrupt and for oppression to take place. Now watch how he parallels this with kingdom greatness. Whoever would be great... Greatness is a servant. And whoever would be first will be a slave. Now it's interesting that he ends with those two words because he follows it with for even the Son of Man, that powerful figure from Daniel 7, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, right here, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is something you give to free a slave and to give his life in exchange for a slave to now become free. If you... Uh, if you were to, so obviously the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, so they have different words for this all together. But in Jesus' day, they actually would have been reading from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. If you go look at the Exodus account, in both Exodus and then several times in Deuteronomy, the freedom that God won for Israel out of slavery in, um, in Egypt is this word, ransom. But if you look in your Bibles, it's translated redeemed. Give him, give, 
himself as a ransom for many. Came not to be served, but to serve. And I think that implicit here is Jesus' question. Um, are you greater than your master? Are you unwilling to serve? Like, can you follow my example? Because you're going you're gonna to taste that same cup of wrath that I will. You will follow me as a disciple will follow the one who doesn't serve, isn't served but serves and is willing to lay his life down. Um, he really will be crushed and he will take on the grief of the world. Um, this, this kind of helplessness that comes with being ransomed takes us back to um, chapter 8. Is it 8? No. The beginning of chapter 10, where Jesus says you have, like, in order to enter the kingdom, you need to come like a child. And that's not cute or sweet. It's helpless with nothing to offer. I've got nothing here. Totally dependent on the mercy of others. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to come and serve and then give my life as a ransom for many. Now, for these, for these 12 idiots, it looked like, like what being, like, um, what living as last or as a lowly servant in order to be great, what that looked like for them was ultimately serving in the church and then dying for their faith. With the exception of John, we don't really have any idea how he might have died a natural death. They tried to boil him alive, didn't work. Um, Holy Spirit just has jokes. So, um, but he needed to keep him around so that we could get the book of Revelation. Um, but the, the other 11 for sure died for their faith. Um, I don't, I, I, I would be shocked if that's the case for us though. And so, um, while for them it looked pretty gruesome, um, in order to follow this, this call that Jesus is placing on their lives, for us it will look quite different. And that's what Drew's going to spend the last little bit here talking about. Um, I'm done. How long of a break? 60 seconds. 60, that is code for you went long, Ryan. <laughs> 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah. All right, I uh, I promise you, I'm, I'm actually, uh, well, I, no, I don't promise you anything about the length that I'm going to go, but I'm going to try to go a little quicker. Thanks. Bad back, bad back. Um, I need this thing closer to my blind eyes. So, um, so want to just kind of jump in here real quick with um, pictures of, wait, how do I do this? iPads are so hard. I'm just going to touch it. There we go. Yeah. I'll keep you all night with this. Okay. I want to show you, uh, just show you a couple quick pictures of my kids. Um, so the new kind of thing that you apparently have to do now if you're a parent is on first day of school, you have to, if you, if you watch anything on Facebook, thank you, sir. Yes. 
You, you have to take pictures of your kids and post them on Facebook for the first day of school. I don't think they actually let your kid move to the next grade unless you did that. And so everybody does this. And this is what my wife does. Is she, she does this kind of cool thing where she um, pulls that chalkboard out and so we can kind of have some memories of, of where they were at this time. Hudson was four at this time when he started pre-K. And she has on there their age, she has their teacher, and then she always has at the bottom what they want to be when they grow up. And uh, so... Well, you can, I don't know if you can read Hudson's or not, but says that when Hudson want, grows up, he wants to be an army, okay? <laughs> not, not an army man, not an army guy, a whole army is what he wants to be when he grows up. And so that is, that is Hudson there. This is uh, Ella, okay? Ella is our six-year-old. She's our oldest since she was in kindergarten this year. If you look down at the bottom of hers, this is so Ella, okay? What does Ella want to be when she grows up? Everything, okay? And this is totally, this is totally my daughter, okay? So there are a lot of kids when they grow up, they want to be an astronaut. There are a lot of kids who want to be president. That is shooting far too low for Ella, okay? Like, why, why be president when I could be that and a veterinarian, okay? And so she wants to be everything when she grows up. She wants to aim big with what she's going to do um, as she gets older in life. And this is Hadley. Hadley doesn't have anything on the board of what she wants to do. I just had to show it to you because she's stinking cute. So, um, so this is Hadley. She's, she's too. She, now she has glasses. If I, if I had a more recent picture, she would have her sweet pink glasses on for you. So um, she's blind like me. Um, can, can you get this off of here so we're not... Because you'll be distracted by the cuteness for the whole rest of the thing. So, but here's why I show you that, actually. Because I think my kids actually exemplify something that is true of almost all kids. And that is, anytime you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, like they always talk big. They always aim high. They always make it something like way up there. They, they want something great. And, and like even, even those who don't say something like really huge and important, like something that's maybe a normal job, they're saying that normal job because to them that's like the greatest thing they can think of. A kid who says they want to be a police officer thinks of an officer who's fighting bad guys as like great, like the, the top of it, right? And so kids always aim great. There's something inside of kids that longs for greatness, that longs for significance, that, that longs to be noticed. And, and that, that same thing that is in all kids is actually very heavy in the 12 disciples. They wanted, like maybe more than anything else it seems like, they wanted to be great. This is huge to them because it, it doesn't just come up in this passage. This isn't the first time that the disciples have gotten at each other's throats over this thing. We saw in the last chapter, chapter 9, verse 34, there's this really funny story where they're on the road and they're walking to Capernaum. Jesus is out in front and as he's walking and they're walking behind him, they get in an argument over who's going to be the greatest in this new kingdom that he's going to set up. And then they get to the house at Capernaum and Jesus is like, Hey, uh, what were you guys talking back there on the road? And you know they all know that like 
they shouldn't be talking about this because they're all like nothing. I don't, I don't know what we were talking about fishing, Jesus, and 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 he gets on them and he, and he tells them almost the exact same thing that we just saw here um, in this passage here. And, and and unfortunately, chapter ten, what Ryan just read to you, is not the last time that they get into this argument. And this one's a little bit more sad, honestly. Luke twenty-two records a an almost identical conversation that takes place, but Luke twenty-two is describing the last night of Jesus' life before he's crucified. Sitting around the table with these men, trying to share some of the most important things they'll ever hear, and they get into an argument over who's the greatest amongst them. And and it's kind of weird because John, John 13 records another really big story that takes place that night around the table. Does anybody remember what that is? John 13 records Jesus getting down, wrapping a towel around himself, and washing his disciples' feet. Now that's either beautiful or it's tragic. Because we don't know the exact chronology of things. It's either beautiful because they get in and argue about who's the greatest, and in response, Jesus gets down on his hands and feet and begins to serve all of them. Or... It's tragic, and and actually, as I study it, the chronology looks a little bit more like this. Jesus gets down on his feet, hands and knees, to serve them and wash their feet. And after he does that, they get in an argument about who's going to be the greatest. That's tragic. They are, like, obsessed with this idea of greatness and who can be the greatest among them. So much so that they'll argue over it in the middle of their Lord washing their feet. It's, it's craziness. But, but the truth is, they're not the only ones obsessed with that. That that, that kind of runs through all of us. Uh, this, this week we celebrated Martin Luther King Day, and, and it's kind of fascinating. One of the last sermons Martin Luther King preached, actually, was on this text right here, Mark 10. Uh, in, in February, the, the end of February, I believe, before he um, was shouted. So probably one of the last three or four sermons that he actually preached in a church was from this passage, and it was a sermon that he called The Drum Major Instinct. I want to read to you an excerpt from that as he's explaining this text a little bit. This is what King says. Now, very quickly, we would automatically condemn James and John, and we would say they were selfish. Why would they make such a selfish request? But before we condemn them too quickly, let us look calmly and honestly at ourselves, and we will discover that we too have that s- those same basic desires for recognition for importance. That same desire for attention, that same desire to be first. Of course, the other disciples got mad with James and John, and you could understand why, but we must understand that we have some of the same James and John qualities, and there is, deep down within all of us, an instinct. It's a kind of drum major instinct, a desire to be out front, a desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first, and it is something that runs the whole gamut of life. 
What King says is this thing runs in us so deep and covers us so much that it is responsible for so many parts of our life from the way we act to the organizations that we join to the things that we buy and the way we treat other people. So much of it is rooted in this drum major instinct, this desire to be out in front, to be known and important and significant, to be great. But then we, and more specifically the disciples, then these 12 disciples run into Jesus. And over and over and over again we see a passage like this and Jesus stops them and says, Will you stop it? It doesn't matter if you're great. It doesn't matter if you're significant. Stop trying to be great. Right? Actually, that's not what he says at all. You read the passage with Ryan just a few minutes ago, but let me read it to you again. This is what he says specifically. Verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. See, Jesus doesn't actually tell them, don't be great. He he actually does almost just the opposite. He tells them how to be great. See, the disciples' problem and and our problem is, is not that we long for greatness. It's that we don't even know what greatness is. So we don't understand what it is, and because we don't understand what it is, we constantly go about trying to get it the wrong way. Like We think that greatness equals success. We think that greatness equals rising to the top. We think that greatness equals being noticed or having power. And so that would mean, of course, that the way to, to get greatness is to get ahead, is to get myself to the top of the class, is to get the better job, is to climb the corporate ladder, is to be known or to be liked. That's how you get greatness. That's what greatness is. Jesus says, no, 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 greatness is service. Greatness is obedience to the Father and what He wants. And you do that not by trying to push yourself up to the top, but by consistently lowering yourself. You do that by sacrificing you what you want for the needs of others. You do that by scrubbing toilets. That's greatness. That's what Jesus says to them. And then after he says that, he gives them this very concrete example of what that means and what that looks like. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the model is Jesus as the Son of Man, as the highest, it gets no higher than him, lowering himself down to um, to the lowest position. Like, it would have been a huge step down for Jesus to become Caesar. For the Son of Man to become Emperor of Rome, a huge step down. But that's not how low he goes. He goes down to Jewish peasant. But that's not how low he goes. He actually goes down to crucified criminal. A a death that you weren't allowed to talk about at, like, the dinner table because it wasn't polite. So 
shameful, so humiliating, this crucifixion. And this is what Jesus lowers himself to do. The, the early church caught on to it, and they would use this as the model for how things ought to work. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but Philippians 2, 1 through 11, you need to read that. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 talks about the emptying of uh, Christ's emptying of himself to become lower. And it is in that, actually, that his greatness is made known. That, that then, in his lowering of himself, God sets him up so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is his greatness, Paul says, and he says that's what we're called to. This is how Martin Luther King described it later on in his sermon. He says this, And so Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. This is what I think uh, Martin Luther King is kind of getting at, and, and I would say I agree with him. I really do believe that, that like this, this idea, this desire for greatness in us, let's see if we can get this to work. The reason my kids are like aiming for something big, the reason Hudson wants to be a whole army, and the reason Ella wants to be everything is not just because they're like wicked and selfish little kids. They are wicked and selfish little kids a lot of times. <laughs> but that's not the main... Like, I really do believe the reason they long for greatness and significance is because that is something that God has hardwired into them. That inside of every one of us is this desire to be great. And because of that, most people will spend their whole lives trying to find greatness and trying to move themselves up. For most people, they'll spend a lot of their life right here. And they'll spend it discontent, wishing they could get higher. And then there are a number uh, of people, and a number of them actually in this room right now, that have a unique amount of giftings and, and hard work and abilities and talents that are going to enable you to climb higher up the ladder than a whole lot of other people around you. And you will make your way up higher and, and even up to this point or even higher, and yet you'll still find yourself discontent. And every Every echo in your soul reverberating throughout you and every message around you from the world is going to tell you that the reason that you're discontent is because you need to get higher up this ladder. That like if you could just get a little bit more successful, if you could just get a little bit better job, if you could just make a little bit more money, then all that discontentment and that thing inside of you would finally be quieted. And then there will be like a very small few of you who will actually get there, and I can't go all the way because I'll knock my head out here, who will make it all the way up to the top of this ladder, and, and you will be gifted enough and hardworking enough and, and maybe just lucky enough to get all the right chances that you will make it to the top, and people will look up at you and long to be you and wish that they could be you and wish that they could be in your place and spend their life striving to catch up with you. And if you get to the top, and if you're lucky enough to have your eyes opened to it when you get up there, do you know what you're going to find up here? Nothing. You're going to find nothing. You're going to find that greatness does not exist up here. 
and you will have wasted your whole life chasing something that wasn't here. Jesus says that greatness is not found by contrary to what the world will tell you and what something inside of you feels by climbing up this ladder, but by consistently climbing down. By consistently being willing to serve. Greatness has nothing to do with the latter. Greatness has nothing to do with what people think of you. Greatness has nothing to do with the clout or the fame that you have. Greatness is all about lowering yourself and serving. Not so people notice what a great servant you are. That's just another weird way of climbing the ladder. But because that's what Jesus did. That's why we go down the ladder because that's what Jesus did. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We serve for that reason, because He did it and because we love Him for doing that and we want to be like Him in doing those things. Two quick things and then I'll wrap up. This is important for you right now as a college student. Because college is like this specific time when your, your whole actual life, your whole purpose for what you're doing is the bettering of yourself, right? Like you're here to get a good degree so that you can get a better job. And so like your whole, your whole schedule is spent getting knowledge poured into you and gaining more skill and gaining more understanding so that you can move more up this ladder. That's, that's not a terrible thing. I'll get to that in a second. But I will tell you this, even we talk about it here sometimes, even spiritually, we develop so much around you in this town for you to gain more knowledge and gain more skill and be fed and be fed and be fed. And that is why if you cannot develop a servant's heart, this is what we call a contributor mentality, someone who is willing to step into the body of Christ and serve where it is needed and all you know how to do is show up and get fed like that's a poisonous mindset that's going to carry you into the next phase of your life I hope that you're finding ways to serve in his church I hope that you're finding ways to serve uh, around your dorm or apartment I hope that you're finding ways to serve people you come in contact with second thing is this it is okay actually to climb this ladder like, there's nothing biblically wrong with being successful. We want you to work hard. We want you to do what you want, to do what you enjoy and to do it well. We want you, sure, to be successful in what you do. There's nothing necessarily wrong with moving up this ladder over the course of your life as long as you are the kind of person who every day makes their way back down to serve. The one fear, now like I said, there's nothing wrong with climbing the ladder. I will just say, be careful when you do. In the same way that last week we saw that it is difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven because it is difficult to see their need for the Savior. If you spend your whole life consumed with climbing up this ladder and you make that a major goal of your attention, as one minister said, you need to be careful because you're going to pass Jesus. He's always coming down. And so, totally, like, like, be successful, work hard, get in places where you can work well, but do not be a person that makes that what your life is about, and do not think that that's where greatness is going to come from. You were made to be great. You were created in the image of God, which means you are designed to reflect His glory to the world around you, designed to reflect His greatness to the world around you. 
But the way you do that is to be just like his son. And so be great by serving. Be great by lowering yourself. Be great in a way that calls attention to him and glorifies him. Let me pray. We'll be done for tonight. Dear God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you so much for your son. Um, This is one of those many things that we would have never figured out, I think, without him. That that to this this complete reversal of of everything we we understood the world to be about when he came and said that it's through serving and then um, showed us what that really looks like. And and, uh, Lord, my, my prayer is that we would not be people who are guilted into wanting to serve more by this passage because that will only last us a couple days. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit would help us see Jesus more and the way that he did these things and that that would just increase a love in us and a desire to please you by being like him. Um, That you would give us that grace. Um, And for those of us who, who find ourselves being very successful in life, um, may we not be blinded by that success. Lord, give us the grace to be able to see where true greatness is and to pursue it for your glory. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.